Look at this. Tell me what you see. Seeds. Seeds. All kinds of seeds. Awesome. Do they? Do, are they all alike? They're all different, aren't they? Okay, he did my sermon right there. That's excellent. Good job, Isaac. It's exactly right. Look around at each one of you. What? Exactly. They all grow. They do have that in common. Thank you. And so look around at each other. And all those people out there, all the big kids out there. Are we all the same? Well, we're kind of the same. We have bodies. We have heads, eyes, ears. We're all humans, right? But we're all different, aren't we? You bet. You bet. We're all different, aren't we? Do we know what we're going to be when we grow up big? Do you have? No. Who do you think knows what we're going to be when we grow up? God. A plant. Ah, say that. A plant of God. Thank you. That was awesome. Oh, you guys are so awesome. I Exactly. You're a plant of God. God's going to help you grow. And who knows? I look at all of you, and I'm so excited thinking of what you're going to be when you grow up. There is like a million different things you could be, right? And it's what? Oh. One of, one of the things that you could be is yourself. Okay. Why do we do this? Let's just let them have the sermon. You guys, that is, you, you have it. You have it. You know it, don't you? So we're all individuals. We're all going to go great places, do great things, no matter what it is. It's going to be awesome because God is with us, right, all along. He's going to be in our ear helping us. You're always going to be a child of God. No matter how big these kids get. And he's always going to be there. Our journey never ends. And so he's going to be with you all along. Good job. Man, you guys are the best. Let's take ten. Let's take hands and let's end with a prayer. I can't hold everybody's hold my elbow. Here, let's include There we go. Let's bow our heads. Dear God. Thank you. For always being in our ear. And our hearts. And traveling with us on this great journey of life. We love you, God. Amen. Thank you, Ms. Heather. Wonderful stuff. That was easy this time. You had a tough crowd at 8.30 to work with, didn't you? really did. A bunch of us grown-ups down here with big kids. But then God's children, literal children here today, they brought the sermon with them, didn't they? They brought the message. Praise be to God. That's a wonderful thing. 
Wonderful, wonderful thing. Pastor Caroline is uh, on vacation this week, I believe. Is that right? With her family. Gone up to New England. So they're enjoying the, the cool New England ways, unless a heat wave is happening up there. And uh, keeping your prayers throughout the course of the day today, our youth pastor, Randy Adair, uh, is out with our youth council this weekend in retreat. They do a, a sort of beginning of summer retreat to uh, determine the leading of the Lord in terms of the direction and practice of the youth ministry during the course of these next next several months. So keep them in your prayers as well. Today, we find ourselves in the next to last ser- sermon in the sermon series, uh, Summer at the Movies. And if you were paying attention, I was not paying attention, Mark, I suppose, during the opening hymn, Holy, 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 you had uh, the rocket blasting off there, right there, yeah. Uh, today, today, the movie that we'll be referencing during the course of, of the next few minutes is the movie that came out in um, 1995 starring Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton and Gary Sinise and Kevin Bacon and Kathleen Quinlan and Ed Harris, the inimitable Ed Harris in 1995, Apollo 13. A goodly number of us folks gathered in the sanctuary today. We were around back in April of 1970, and we remember to some degree or another uh, how the grippedness of uh, those three astronauts, uh, Lovell, uh, Heiss, and Swigert, uh, they trapped in that damaged craft uh, between Earth and Moon and with the grace, by the grace of God, and the help of God, and the help of a whole lot of other folk, very smart, very disciplined, uh, very trusting people went to work uh, to bring those three astronauts back home. Uh, and they did so, and so forth. We'll be taking a look at a clip from that. What you heard uh, Sharon Carlton read from the letter to the Romans, though, Paul's word, is a word about, though, the confidence that we ultimately must come to, that we must arrive at a place where we have full buy-in in our own heart and in our own courageous convictions, that uh, before, during, and after we come to the limits of our own capability as human beings, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as people wishing by the grace of God to have as fruitful and effective a discipleship as possible in the midst of life in a very uncertain world. We have to come to a place where we are willing to set aside certain questions, uncertainties, and doubts about ourselves and focus on the real meat, the real core stuff that has to be met and embraced and then moved beyond in terms of our life and walk of faith and our relationship with God. And that are the questions about not who am I, what am I, what are my abilities, and what are my limitations. Uh, Do I want to be a part of God's call and God's work or not? And so forth and so on to the more fundamental questions of who do I belong to? Who is God? And do I trust that when God says, I will be with you, not just present but actively engaged, actively engaged in grace and in power and love, Are we all in? Do we believe it? Do we trust it? And do we courageously move forth from it? The Romans passage reminds us that when we have come to the end of our rope and capability, and we've tied a knot at the end of that rope, and we are hanging on like crazy, we're not alone, but we're more than just not alone. 
there is an active God through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit that's moving and seeking and pressing for ways forward to get us and our fellows home, home safely, to those places of promised land in Christ. Now, what we're going to hear right now in terms of a second reading uh, is, is, comes as a bit of a surprise. It's, it's one of the most, for me, enigmatic places in, in, in the wonderful story of the Exodus. Uh, and it comes right upon the heels in Exodus chapter 3 of Moses, now a shepherd in Midian, and has been that way for a long, long time now. Years, decades has gone by since he fled as a young person out of Egypt where he was both prince in Egypt and he was also arriving at a dawning awareness of who his true people were and his true God was. And due to his actions there was now an outcast and a bounty was on his head in Egypt and he had to flee. And so as you know the story in Exodus 1 and 2, how he ends up in Midian and now it's years, it's decades later. And the stuff of Egypt, except for his hungering and his thirsting and being continually nagged and pricked at by this God of his fathers and mothers, pretty much the stuff of Egypt has faded into insignificance until he gets up on one particular morning and he thinks it's just going to be like a morning like any other. Get up, get his clothes on, kiss his wife, good day, and he grabs gets a hold of his father-in-law's, Jethro's flocks, and he takes the flocks out for the day. And he thinks it's going to be just another day in paradise until he sees a bush that is burning but is not being consumed. And he hears a voice, and the voice calls him to join his God in hearing the cry of his oppressed people and being an instrument of this liberating God's will. And so in the third chapter of Exodus, either on the screens or by your own Bible or a pew Bible, I invite you to join me in verse 7 for just a moment through verse 12. And this comes immediately on the heels. This is Moses' first response of several responses in quick order, where basically he responds by saying, you want me to do what? Who, me? And to that, God has an interesting word to say. So in verse 7, And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters, and indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God goes on. For the cry of the Israelites has now come to me, And I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, 
I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. The most enigmatic moment in the story. Here is the sign. That when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you and they together, you shall be back at this place and worship God on this mountain. This is the Word of God for the people of God today. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pray with me, will you? So here, Lord, on this next to concluding Sunday in the series Summer at the Movies. And as we consider a clip or two from that 1995 movie, Apollo 13, and as we consider the work and presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives through the grace of Jesus Christ, and as we consider this lesson in Exodus 3, we seek to find connections and applications today to your glory and to our fruitfulness. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. First Moses there. Now, does it seem does it seem like now's a great time to join Moses in picking a seriously detailed and skeptical conversation with God about a few things? Moses has just received the most startling call and claim upon his life that he has ever known. He has begun to weigh himself in the balance in light of this, and he has lots of questions and lots of uncertainties, most of which are about himself. Understandable. And so in this segment in chapter 3 and chapter 4 comes a series of of Moses' retorts or resistances or even objections, according to some scholars, But the very first one, the very first one, highlights the fundamental question of Moses' life in relationship, a new relationship to this God of his and our own. And that is, not who am I? What are my pluses? What are my minuses? What are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? What are my... What are my places of courage and what are my places of fear? But God's saying to Moses, Moses, buddy, you're asking the wrong questions. The questions you're asking is, what about Moses? What about me? As Moses would say. And God says to him here in this opening section that I read to you a second ago. He says, that's wrong questions. The questions to be asking me. It's what about me? What about God? Not what about Moses, but what about God? It's way too cliche-ish in our own day and time. We use it all the time. We use it with each other all the time, particularly when we're trying to talk each other into signing up and being a shepherd at Vacation Bible School when we are still a little short on staff. And, we, and that's important as it is. It tends to trivialize the question. And the question simply is, from the statement that we have all entered into long ago, God does not equip the called, or does he? Or does God just call the equipped? Think about the question. What does God do? Does God call people that are already ready, equipped, 
understanding, ready to step out in courageous trust? Is that the only kind of people God calls? Or does God equip those God does call? Even the timids of the world, like you and me, and like Moses, and like Gideon, and like any number of folk in the scriptural witness, well, lo and behold, here's Moses. And Moses immediately is saying, why me? I can't do that. And then Moses, as part of that, says, but you've got you to give me something, God. You've got to show me something, God. And we have all kinds of sympathy for Moses at that point. At least I do. Probably you do too. Because if I'm looking at such a profoundly frightening call to go and participate with the Lord our God in some moment of freedom and liberating of somebody and God's people, I believe I want to know going in, wouldn't you? Going in the front door, wouldn't you? About what I could count on. In that first instance of response, all that God gives Moses, all that our God gives Moses is one assurance. And that assurance is, Moses, buddy, it's not about you, it's about me here. And what I pledge and promise to you is, is that I will be with you. Now, when you unpack that language-wise there in the Hebrew, it means more, that statement of God, I will be with you, it means so much more than just, I will be present with you. That is not always a great comfort. But it also means, profoundly so, it means, Not only will I be present with you in this calling, I will be permanently present with you in every second, every moment, every endeavor, every challenge, every victory, every defeat of that calling. And in being permanently present, I will be permanently active for your sake and the sake of the people. In grace, yes, and in tough love, yes. But that's what it means. That was not enough for Moses early on. He wanted more. He hoped for more. Going in the front door and said, I need a sign. I need something. And then God says this. God says, here's a sign. Buddy, it's a sign, but it's a sign you'll only appreciate and you'll only embrace and you'll only get life from. When you get to a place where you're willing to quit asking questions about yourself and you're willing to make affirmations about me. When you're willing to courageously trust that everything I say and promise, I will make good on. When you're ready to do that before anything else, then here's a sign that's going to make all kinds of good sense to you. It says, When you, one of these days, arrive back here at this very location with all of these people that you've helped liberate by my power and grace from the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, you and all of these folks are going to end up right back here and you'll be so overjoyed and you will be so thankful that all of you together will say, 
Let's have church. And you will. And then you'll remember after the fact that I have been utterly faithful in everything that I do. If you go on and read the rest of Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 and part of Exodus 5, what you get the immediate impression was is that sounded really good, but Moses was anything but convinced even to that point. But God's promise and God's directive holds true. And that is oftentimes the very first thing. Once, twice, a hundred times, a thousand times, and you're in my walk with the Lord, the first thing that we have to face and embrace and grab hold of and come to a place of courageous conviction about, about, and then being able to move beyond that, but take that with us, is the, is the question, are we willing to lay aside all of the doubts and uncertainties about us? And are we willing something to, to say, God does indeed. Equip the called. And I'm part of that. And the issue is not about what I lack or what I have. You lack or you have. <coughs> Excuse me. It's about what God promises to be and do. And when we arrive at that conviction that we're all in on that, then miracles can happen. Miracles can happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. A miracle happened during the month of April in the year 1970 when those three astronauts took their flight toward the moon to do what they were going to do. And after a call to, uh, to shake up their oxygen tanks, <clears throat> uh, that explosion took place up there in one tank. And that whole situation was crippled, and from that began a remarkably tense, frightening, creative three or four or five day episode whereby those three astronauts got at work, and got at work through hundreds, if not thousands, of absolutely committed fellow travelers on this planet. For the sake of those three astronauts, went to work to figure out a way to get those guys home. And if you remember the movie, you remember the movie. You remember how creatively Ron Howard pulled all of that together, but also pulled together the palpable angst and fear and hope to hope that family members, friends, spouses, and children of these three astronauts went through. And somehow, some way, those three astronauts had to come to a place where by virtue of their shaping and their training and their prior experience and the strength of hope in their hearts, they had to come to a place, too, where they had to face the same kind of questions about God and about others that Moses had to face, embrace it, and then go to work. And in the midst of that crisis, the national news posted and ran an interview. That sometime prior to the crisis, astronaut James Lovell gave about his own sense of hope. Let's see the clip. Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell has more time and space, almost 24 days already, than any other man. And I asked him recently if he ever was scared. 
Oh, well, I've had an engine flame out a few times in an aircraft and was kind of curious as to whether it was going to light up again, things of that nature. But uh, they seem to work out. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall here? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time. I'm, uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was the Shangri-La when we were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed. And my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency. And so it was, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So uh, I flip on my map light. And then suddenly, zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about, uh, about ditching in the ocean. And I, I look down there, and then... In, in the darkness, there's this, uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was, it was, it was just leading me home. And now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So, uh, you, uh, you never know what, what events are going to transpire to get you home. You never know what events are going to transpire to get one home, or to promised land, or to fruitfulness, or who will transpire in committed, loving presence, active presence with you and me, and who will surround this God of ours, people, sisters and brothers like you and me, who will be energetically, creatively, courageously invested a great personal sacrifice to themselves to be a part of God's effort to get you and me home. And we would be the same in their lives. Perhaps you remember that there in the movie, one of the most uh, poignant moments about that, about God's people surrounding the effort to be a part of whatever they need to do to get these three astronauts home. Uh, you remember Ed Harris's character declaring in the midst of debate and rancor and, and argumentation and everything else that's going on by very smart, very creative people there at NASA. He just calls a halt to it, perhaps you remember, and he declares people enough of that. Failure will not be an option. You remember that? Indeed. And I think that's very much God's idea, too, pertaining to that. God says, too, failure, my dream and wish for you in getting you safely home, getting you to the promised lands that I would lead you to, failure will not be an option. But it's not just God's work. In the movie, in the movie, thousands of others come. And in one place, remember the carbon dioxide filter problem. And they only had hours left. And man, it was going to be three dead guys up in a, up in a broken down space module between the earth and the moon. And they did not know what to do. They only had a cut. They only had a handful of hours to do something and then send the directions up to the three astronauts. And hopefully with the materials that they had there somewhere in those modules, they'd be able to put together a carbon dioxide filter that worked. And so a head engineer brings into his work team there in the movie boxes of just stuff. 
that belong also in duplicate up on in the modules. And he just dumps it all on the table. And he says, no pressure, fellas, but these guys are going to die up there unless we can make a prototype for a filter right here, right now. And they do. And they do. The writer to the Hebrews says, And since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run that race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Folks, not just in the stands cheering us on, and we cheering others on, but in the spirit of Apollo 13 and in the spirit of what Moses was going to experience in his own ministry over many years as being God's instrument of a liberation and training up a people. They come out of the stands and they lay hands to our lives. And we lay hands to theirs in Christ Jesus. And we're God's instruments to one another in grace. And that is the truth of it. And that is the truth of it. Yes. Apollo 13. All along the way, Moses and everybody else associated with this storyline today received instances and moments of resourcing and direction and inspiration from God in order to get it done and the very outflowing of God's power in profound ways to bring liberation to God's people in Egypt and freedom from death for those three astronauts in the movie. Yes, indeed. But all along, it was accompanied by the courageous investment in people's lives that you and I have experienced directly in our own through Christ. And we give unhesitatingly to others.